Hey, I just want to say thank you for checking out this message today. I hope that it helps you, that it encourages you, and that you are able to learn a little bit more about who God is and why so many people throughout history have chosen to become followers of Jesus. If you enjoy this message and you want to hear more, you can find us on Facebook or YouTube, but ultimately you can find everything you need to know at clcwinnipeg.ca. There you can find more messages, you can find our social handles, ways to get connected to our church, and if you would like to give to this ministry, you can do that as well. And like I said before, I hope that you are encouraged by the message you're about to hear. God bless you. Hey everyone, my name is Scott, and today we're talking about the book of Obadiah. We're going through every book of the Bible, cover to cover, and uh, we're, we're in the Minor Prophets right now. And chances are, if you're anything like me, you've had a similar experience. Either one of two things. You've never bothered to read the book of Obadiah, or two, you know that you have read Obadiah before, but you can't recall what it was about at all. And maybe there's a few like Bible scholars listening. And if, if you are intimately familiar with this book, that's awesome. But uh, my bet is that not a ton of us are super familiar with this book. And honestly, that kind of makes sense. This isn't a book that has any of those common passages that people read and commit to memory. It doesn't contain like a Jeremiah 29.11 or a Micah 6.8. And reading it doesn't exactly inspire you at first. It takes some digging to really get into the meaning of this book. And part of why you may not remember this book, if you have read it, is because it's only one chapter. Obadiah is actually the shortest book in the whole Old Testament, clocking in at a whopping 21 verses start to finish. So I think you can forgive yourself if you don't really recall ever reading this book. Because it seems like as soon as you're into it, it's over. But I do believe that there is an important lesson that we're going to be able to apply to our own lives from this book today. But first, I think we should set it up a little bit. So we don't really know who Obadiah was. There are actually 13 men named Obadiah mentioned in the Old Testament, which means it was probably a pretty common name in ancient times. There's one Obadiah mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 18 who seems to stand out as a pretty strong candidate to be the one who wrote the book of Obadiah, though. The prophet Elijah, while under the persecution of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, in 1 Kings 18, met a man named Obadiah who claims that he has actually hidden 100 of God's prophets from Jezebel in two caves, 50 in each. And if this were the mysterious Obadiah that this book is named after, it would mean that he is one of the authors of one of the earliest books of prophecy. But in all honesty, we're not really sure who wrote this book. And this is how the book starts off. Verse 1. This is the vision that the sovereign Lord revealed to Obadiah concerning the Lord of Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord that an ambassador was sent to the nations to say, Get ready, everyone. Let's assemble our armies and attack Edom. It's a pretty intense beginning. The book starts with a call to battle against the nation of Edom. So who is Edom and why are they being attacked? Well, to explain this, we can go all the way back to the book of Genesis in chapter 25. This is where we read about the birth of two twin boys. Their names are Jacob and Esau. And these were the grandchildren of Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith. And these two boys got off to a pretty rough start. 
When their mother, Rebecca, was pregnant with them, it says that she could actually feel them jostling inside of her. They were fighting before they were even born. And I think some of us probably had pretty contentious relationships with our siblings, but I doubt that many of us have been fighting since before we were born. That was Jacob and Esau. And all throughout their lives, they fought and they jostled for position. And Esau was born first. And because of this, he was given a birthright that would leave him with a much larger inheritance and the majority of his parents' resources. But in a moment of weakness, he decided to give that over to Jacob, who later tricked his father Isaac into the birthright and a special blessing. So you can see how Esau may have been a little upset with Jacob. But in their lives, it appeared that they actually made some amends as Esau later embraced Jacob. Unfortunately, their ancestors did not seem to carry that kind of goodwill towards each other. The descendants of each of these brothers actually turned into two nations. There's the Israelites, the descendants of Jacob, and the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. And relationships between these two relatively small nations was often contentious. They fought and they quarreled, and even though they should have had a lot in common, it came to the point where the Edomites really got on God's bad side. What started to happen was that the Israelites, after years of being unfaithful to God, started to get attacked by much more powerful nations. And did the Edomites help out this nation that they shared so much with? No, not even a little. Instead, what they did was they saw their neighbors, Israel, getting attacked, and they believed that they were safe because of their own strength, and they refused to help the Israelites. Then, as the Israelites were being torn down, they would actually go into the cities after and begin to plunder what their enemies had not taken. They took anything that was left. And then, to make it even worse, as many Israelites were trying to flee and get away to other towns, they would actually get ambushed by the Edomites who would steal from them and kill them. And then they would capture some of them and take them over to their enemies. Talk about pouring salt into a wound. And you can see why God would have been so angry at the way that they were treating his chosen people. But is that why God was so, so angry with the Edomites and prophesied their destruction through Obadiah? Well, kind of. But God actually singles out one sin in particular that I want to talk about today. We're going to have to look at verses 2 to 4. The Lord says to Edom, I will cut you down to size among the nations. You will be greatly despised. You have been deceived by your own pride because you live in a rock fortress and make your home high in the mountains. Who can ever reach us way up here? You ask boastfully. But even if you soar as high as eagles and build your nest among the stars, I will bring you crashing down, says the Lord. Did you catch it? What is the one deadly sin that God is upset with the Edomites for? It's in verse 3. You have been deceived by your pride. Out of all the things that they did, the plundering, the looting, the killing, and the capturing, God spends three verses, an entire seventh of this book, talking about their pride. And it's true, they were proud. The Edomites were a pretty resilient people. They lived in a rock fortress that they believed meant that they basically couldn't be touched. They thought, look at us. We have the protection of rocks. No one will be able to get to us. We have the high ground. We're not being attacked because we are superior to the Israelites. But that wasn't really the case. The Israelites were receiving the divine judgment from God for their sins, and Edom was about to receive the same. 
but theirs was because God hated their pride. So I think that begs the question, why does God hate pride so much? I've always been able to understand that pride isn't good. Of course it's not good. It doesn't feel good to be around really proud people. And we're all familiar, I'm sure, with sayings like pride comes before the fall, which is kind of a biblical proverb that is spilled into common knowledge. But it's not just that we don't like it. Pride is actually included in the list of the seven deadly sins. And this is a list that like early church fathers developed as they noticed a pattern of sins that seemed to ruin lives. And I can understand most of them and how they make the list. Like lust, yeah, we've all seen that destroy lives, I think. Anger, sure, no one likes angry people. Greed, yeah, you gotta avoid that. It doesn't end up in a good place. Envy, sure. Gluttony, we probably don't talk about that enough, but I think we can see how that would be deadly. And sloth or laziness, if you're not really familiar with that word. Yeah, that makes sense. You don't contribute, you don't eat. Fair enough. But pride. I can see how it's sin, but how is it deadly? Well, I want to make a few observations on the Edomites and pride. I think there's actually two kinds of pride that are really common. There's the outward obnoxious pride. The kind of people who only like to talk about themselves, who seem to get bored whenever they are forced to spend any time talking about other people, and the ones that are convinced of the fact that they deserve to be admired. We might call these people egomaniacs, narcissists, braggers. And the first type of pride is vain, and it's focused on their qualities and their accomplishments. But I think that there's another type of pride that's a little more subtle, but it's rising. And that's the pride of ideology. Wherever you fall, conservative, progressive, Christian, non-Christian, pro-vax, anti-vax, pro-life, pro-choice, left, right, up, down, backwards, forwards, a lot of us have a tendency to slip into a position of pride within our belief systems. We can get caught into the trap of believing that our views are superior. And it turns into this smug position of arrogance that if other people just had the education or the knowledge of history or the critical thinking skills that you do, then they would see the truth too. And I think that over the last couple of years, we've seen that come out in a bunch of different ways. And as people slip further away from the center, we've seen that it shuts down conversation, it turns into name calling, posting inflammatory posts on Facebook, and just general fighting. None of this is productive and none of it bears fruit. So what's wrong with pride? Four thoughts. Number one, pride is deceitful. Pride's deceptive. It causes us to think things about ourselves that are not true. In the case of the Edomites, they thought that they were all high and mighty because of their position within the rock fortress. But the reality is, they weren't really that great at all. The Edomites were actually a pretty poor nation without a lot of resources. They're kind of like that friend who brags about how great their life is and how well they're doing and drives a cool car. But as you go along, you find out that they're in a ton of debt, their marriage is falling apart, and their job isn't nearly as glamorous as they made it sound. Pride causes us to be deceived about how well we're doing, and sometimes it causes us to be deceived by how well others say that they are doing. So pride is deceitful. Number two, pride is inactive. When Edom realized that the Israelites were doomed, they didn't do anything at all. They didn't help. 
They just watched. Because why should they help? They're at home in the rock fortress, and they're going to be safe. But when we're proud, it can lead us to believing that we actually don't need to help. It can lead to inaction from fear that it will compromise the very things that we take pride in. Maybe the Edomites were afraid to lose their homes as well. It's kind of like if you're considered a great athlete by your peers and you try a new sport and fail, there's a chance that you might kind of bruise your ego. But if you remain inactive and you don't even try new things, then you can keep your pride intact. When you see a need and don't help, you can believe that you didn't need to help because you're better than those who needed it. And I think that was the lie that the Edomites believed. So proud people are deceitful, proud people are inactive, and proud people exploit. Edom quickly progressed from the point of watching from the sidelines as the Israelites were being attacked to actually rejoicing in the fact that they were not the ones who were being attacked. And when they began to rejoice that they were not the ones being attacked, they began to exploit the Israelites. They went in behind the Israelites' attackers and began to take what little was left. They killed the remaining Israelites and they aligned themselves with the enemy by capturing and handing over Israelites who were fleeing. They started to use the misfortune of the Israelites and turn it into fortune for themselves. And fourth, proud people hurt themselves too. Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. I actually quite like what Eugene Peterson wrote in the message. He wrote this verse as first pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. There's consequences to our actions. And the consequences of pride over and over are that it leads to destruction. The more that you put yourself first in your life, the more that you will be likely to meet your end. And we can kind of picture how this plays out. The more that you prioritize yourself, the more that your relationships break down, people are less likely to help you, you're more afraid to ask for help, and the more that you end up isolating yourself. And I want you to hear that I am not railing against taking care of yourself at all. That's not what this is about. I think some of us actually need to think about our own health a little bit more. But there's a point where thinking about and prioritizing yourself can become unhealthy. And I actually think that's what makes pride so difficult is it's not like, it's not as easy to spot as other sins. It's, it's a little bit more of a spectrum. It's really hard to measure your pride. How do you know if you're proud? How do you know if you just have a healthy self-image? And when is taking care of yourself excessive? Well, I think that C.S. Lewis might have an answer for us. He once wrote, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. We can spot pride when we are looking down all the time. When you think that you're doing so well in life that everyone else is beneath you. When you feel you can do no wrong. If you're starting to feel that you don't need to look up to God because you look in the mirror and you believe that you have everything you need to succeed, you might be struggling with some pride. And I think that's why pride is so deadly. It causes us to look down on everything else and it leads to more sin. And notice that Proverbs says that pride comes before destruction. 
So is it possible that pride is actually the sin that precedes every other deadly sin? Think about it. Before you're lazy, you come to the conclusion, why should I work? I have people around me who can work for me. Before you're envious, you feel that you deserve what you do not have. Before you lust, you might feel that your highest priority is not your own purity, nor the sanctity of your marriage, but the right that you have to pleasure. And that's what leads to the deadliness of our sin, believing a lie that pride tells us. The Edomites found this out firsthand. They were proud, and it led to all kinds of other sins. And their destruction was not immediate. But sometime in the early first century, after Christ had come, they went to war against the Romans, and they were completely wiped out, never to be heard from again. And this prophecy of Obadiah has already been fulfilled. The Edomites suffered the full consequences of their deception, their inaction, and their exploitation. Obadiah wrote in verse 15, As you have done to Israel, so it will be done to you. And it was. The same way that they acted towards Israel was handed back to them by God. So I think a question for us today, is it possible that we may be guilty of the same sin as the Edomites? I think we can all struggle with pride at times. I know that there have been times in my life where honestly, I felt like I was doing pretty good. And at times I've had to check, am I actually becoming too proud of myself right now? Like life is going well. How am I making sure that I'm still submitting to God? Sometimes we may see people in need and we expect that there are others who can help. Is that a moment where our sin needs to be checked? Do we take advantage of people who are in a lesser position for our own personal gain? Do we hold our own values and opinions up as the best thing about us that makes us a better, more well-developed person than those around us? Are you so self-absorbed that you miss what is important around you? And if we fall into any of these traps, what can we do instead? I just want to leave you with three short principles to help fight pride in your own life and live as God intended. Principle number one, show mercy. The Edomites were condemned for their lack of help and their acts of destruction. In return, God did not help them and he allowed them to be destroyed. I think the same principle in many ways is true for us. None of us are looking to be destroyed. I'm pretty sure of that. What we ought to desire instead is mercy. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, his longest sermon on how to be his follower, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. If we want mercy from God, we will do well to give mercy to others. Principle number two, bind truth with love. If it's a pride of ideologies that we are struggling with, and we all know how many ideologies there are to get tied up in today, we should do our very best to let love take the lead as we hold on to our ideologies. So whatever it may be, are you planted in ideas so much that your relationships are suffering? Have you taken so firmly to ideas that you refuse to listen to other points of view? Do you think 
less of those who oppose you? And if you answered yes to any of those questions, I would encourage you to come back to who Jesus calls us to be and to let love lead the way. Remember that every person you speak to is made in the image of God, just like you. And because of that, every person has inherent worth that makes them worthy of love and respect. In John 13, verse 35, Jesus said, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So you may have truth, but do you also have love? We are most like Jesus when we are able to bind truth to love. And lastly, principle number three, fight for humility. If the opposite of pride is humility, we should fight to be humble. The theologian John Owen once wrote, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. As God reveals sin to us, we should be doing everything we can to put an end to it. As the Holy Spirit reveals our sin, we make choices to end that sin before it has a chance to end us. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. So as we struggle to not be like the Edomites, as we pursue mercy and love and humility, let's not let pride have a foothold in our lives. Let's fight to kill the sin in our lives, and let's help to hold each other accountable. And first, and foremost, may we all keep Christ in front of us. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for this message, this reminder of such a a dangerous sin that can sneak into our lives unannounced, unknown, and undetected. And God, may we be so mindful of avoiding pride in our lives. May we be people who walk in humility and grace and love and mercy. God, thank you for this message from this tiny book in the Old Testament that has such a powerful reminder for us today. And as we walk out the truth of your word, may you go before us and behind us and beside us. In your name we pray. Amen.